0: Again! You said that wrong, mister! And Spider-Man still! to Season 2, Episode 11 of Me and My Friend Pete. Another Donuts and Dimes production. The podcast where we explore all things THE Amazing Spider-Man comic book series. I'm your host, Peter Parker's persnickety pal, Gerald. If this is your first time with us, welcome. If it isn't, welcome three times and back once. This week, we're running through THE Amazing Spider-Man number 37. Once upon a time, there was a robot. Before we dive in, I want to offer a sincere apology. If you've been listening from the beginning, you know the schedule has become much more bi and tri-weekly than the usual one a week. There's an honest reason for that. When this podcast started, I had a lot more free time on my hands. We were in the eye of the pandemic, I'd lost my job and with few prospects had a lot more time to juggle my writing and the podcast. However, with the world gaining new life, I too had to get back out there in the world and once again, try to make my way. It's been rough at times, For as much joy as I get from doing this podcast, living in the world can be a lot for me, and choosing the career path I have, I'm constantly fatigued from the sheer breadth of social interaction I'm now responsible for being in the midst of. I'm an introvert, partly by nature, partly by design, so it isn't easy to decompress once the workday is done, and despite how much I love reading and retelling the stories of our dear friend Pete, honestly, I feel a bit beat up when the day ends. (laughs) Cry me a river, right? I know, I know. But I'm human and never aspire to be anything more, than a good one part of that means doing your best in all the things you care about i love this podcast in my darkest moments it dragged me from my depression and brought me back to the light as a good spidey story often does so i'd be remiss if i started to pump out episodes that i didn't give my best on hence the delays so going forward expect a two to three week space between episodes if you've noticed i've been using season one bonus episodes as buffers if i go more than two weeks without a new episode this has allowed me time to get the main episodes and bonus episodes for season two out with the same bargain basement quality I hope you've come to know and love. I hope you choose to stay aboard our crazy train because I appreciate every listener for every moment they give their ears to me and my friend Pete. At the end of it, like the great writer Don Delilo wrote, I'm just a Bronx boy wondering why he is here. But I'm sure doing this makes my journey a lot more fun. All that said, that's all that said and what's left to say. This podcast is completely listener-supported, so if you haven't, please consider becoming a patron over at patreon.com slash hspp in the Keykeeper or High Council tiers. Patrons get a bonus episode every time we release one here. This week's bonus episode, Superior Number 2, gives the world a brand new superhero who combines the childlike wonder of Shazam, all the strengths of Superman, and the Hollywood good looks of Marvel's Wonder Man. But that's later. Right now, we've got a great episode this week, folks, as the King of Swing from Forest Hills, Queens, Rogue Gallery grows with the first appearance of a one Mendel Strom. We've got flubber and Terminator robots. We've got more fisticuffs than a bare knuckle brawl in the five points at the turn of the century. We've got the first official appearance of a man who almost single-handedly has been responsible for some of Spidey's greatest moments, a one Norman Osborn. And I promise he's coming out swinging literally and we've got me we've got you we've got no further ado we've got the amazing spider-man number 37 once upon a time there was a robot let's swing me and my best friend pete old adventures new critiques he spins webs i spin yarns Kinda kooky, be forewarned, look out, it's me and my friend P. Before we begin. Last episode, we covered Daredevil Volume 1, Number 16, and left off on a cliffhanger of Spidey about to beat the snot out of Foggy Nelson, assuming the stocky lawyer was Daredevil, with the real Daredevil in the room, afraid to help for fear of giving away his identity. For our brief coverage, check out Delusions and Grandeur. Here on me and my friend Pete. Daredevil the Man Without Fear, number 17, None Are So Blind, was written by smiling Stan Lee with fearless Frankie Ray on inks, jazzy John Romita on art, and swinging Sammy Rosen on letters. So that's where Sam Goes Ham Rosen got off to. Any complaints could be sent to the irascible Irving Forbush. And 17 opens exactly where we left off, with Spidey hemming foggy up over the windowsill. Karen Page holding his fist back so Spidey can't knock the man's lights out and Matt Murdock frozen in indecision behind the three of them. Spidey wants Foggy to admit he's Daredevil and when the man doesn't Spidey literally hangs him out of the window by his blazer. He asks the man how can he call himself the man without fear when he's scared to admit that he's Daredevil and Karen gets logic-y. She asks Spidey how can he throw stones when he's never admitted to who he is under his mask. Spidey, finally noticing Foggy's a husky fella, pulls the man back into the window and tosses him onto the floor, calling the man Butterball, and tells Foggy that if he, Spider-Man, finds out that the man is Daredevil, he'll be back before leaping out of the window and getting Ghost. Back in the office, Foggy, noticing the awe in Karen's voice when she speaks about Spider-Man, decides that to impress her, he's going to pretend to be Daredevil so she'll fall in love with him. (laughs) This guy's channeling Flash Fashion on Trash Thompson. Matt, the real Daredevil, thinks his best friend's a fool, that if the Underworld found out Foggy was saying he's Daredevil, someone will really toss him out of a window. Foggy and Karen leave the office, and Matt, quickest costume change in the game, Murdoch is into his Daredevil costume, out of the office window, and swinging above the city we know and love in seconds, with one goal in mind. Find the masked Marauder. So he heads towards the World Motors building, site of the Marauder's last heist. Hornhead lands outside of the building and eavesdrops with his A1 hearing on the conversation being had by the World Motors Board of Directors. The board says that the engine that the Marauder stole can be used by an enemy nation for weapons of war, and they have to get it back. A young board member points out that without the formula for the fuel, the Marauder doesn't have everything. This gives D.D. an idea for setting a trap. He heads to 39th Street, 2nd Avenue, Midtown Limestone Building. You can't miss it to see none other than the miserable magnate J. Jonah Jameson telling the man that he's got a headline story that trashes Spider-Man and the Masked Marauder. Jameson says if the headline's good, he's not going to put it in the paper. He'll do DD-1 better and buy some television airtime. And 45 minutes later, J.J. is sitting in front of a camera shouting to whoever will listen that the Masked Marauder failed in his engine theft, that without the fuel formula, he and his partner Spider-Man have no chance. Oh, and there are people who will listen. Pete, seething watching this at home, shouts, (coughs) with May in the other room, that Jameson's blaming him again for a crime he hasn't done, that if he were in Rome when it burned, Jameson would say Spider-Man gave Nero the match. Spidey, always a fan of the history. Of course Pete's heading to the World Motor Center tonight. The mass marauder, watching Jameson's bluster from his hideout, thinks, well, if I'm missing a formula, I'm going to steal that formula, and plans to do just that the next night. The Motor Company Board of Directors, they're watching as well. And they're pissed knowing that Jameson has just put a target on their backs. The head of the board orders the security measures redoubled. He wants the police, the National Guard, the FBI, SWAT, everyone. And he wants them fast. Daredevil, listening from the roof of the building, waits until dawn for the mass marauder to show up. But to no avail. And with nothing else to do, he heads to work to start his day. Dust falls on the city and Spidey perches on the sheer wall of a building across from the World Motor Center high above the city when he spots Daredevil swinging by on his billy club line. The two get into a second fight, DD trying to convince Spidey that they're on the same side, asking our hero if he doesn't remember when they fought the ringmaster together in DD's first appearance in a Spidey comic, ASM number 16. That's season one's Spiance in the Fleabag. Here are me and my friend Pete. The two may have looked evenly matched in that first fight last issue, but Spidey outlasts Daredevil in this one, and with a Geronimo, delivers a solid left cross that floors the man without fear. DD, no quit in him, tries to fight to his feet to continue the brawl, earning Spidey's respect. But the two have to put their fight on hold when a large golden rod colored blimp floats by. They call timeout, both focused on the balloon, believing this blimp is how the Mass Marauder is going to strike. On the roof of the World Motors building, two security guards on high alert realize they're worried for nothing at the sight of the blimp as it turns around and they see on its side the logo of the World Motors Center. But of course, the Mass Marauder and his recycled gang of Purple City goons are inside the blimp. Mass Marauder puts 30 seconds on the clock and his gang begin descending from the blimp on a rope ladder. Spidey says that he's going to handle this, that if Daredevil interferes, he'll know the man was working with the Masked Marauder and Daredevil to prove he's on the up and up, Does much like he did in ASM number 16, saying he's going to be Spidey's cheering section. Meanwhile on the roof, the Masked Marauder blinds the two guards with eye beams and lands with his goons, ready to take the building, then the formula. But Spidey bursts onto the scene screaming. Your friendly neighborhood Spider-Man, defender of the weak, oppressor of the wicked, and former handball champ of my entire neighborhood. Before dropping three groons with his three free limbs. He hits the rooftop and when I say he lays waste to the cronies, oh man, I mean it. He's webbing up guns, he's clunking heads together, he's tossing goons into goons, quipping the whole time. And I love this, because if you're a kid reading Daredevil at this time, by the time you're done with this comic, you want to read Spider-Man. Much like ASM16, where Daredevil put his skills on full display. These crossovers capture the spirit of the guest stars so well. To me, it reminds me of Eminem on Jay-Z's Renegade track, and conversely, Jay-Z's 8 Mile and Running track on the 8 Mile soundtrack. We're getting some of their absolute best stuff, and it's great to read. Back to All the Goons Down, Spidey goes after the Masked Marauder and is immediately blinded. But no worries, because the man with foul fear decides to make an entrance in this moment, literally stomping on the masked marauder's ribcage from above. The marauder tries to blind DD, but our hero's never weakness of sightlessness becomes even more of a strength, and he keeps advancing on the masked marauder and soundly drops the man with a double-fisted gut shot. Before grabbing a goon's weapon that's laying nearby and sensing the gun only has one shot in it, he takes sightless aim at the golden blimp as the marauder's goons all try to make a getaway. Daredevil knows he's only got one shot. He He pulls pulls the trigger and blows up the entire blimp with a single bullet, preventing the Purple City gang's escape. Fire raging around him, he rounds up the goons a moment before the guards burst through the roof door, guns drawn, followed by the CEO of the company, who screams that Jameson was right. Daredevil was innocent. Spidey was really working with the mass marauder. Spidey, thinking he's screwed, is surprised a second later when he hears DD tell everyone that Spider-Man was responsible for taking down the Masked Marauder and his gang before leaping from the rooftop to find the Mass Marauder, who's escaped in the confusion. In reality, the Masked Marauder has beaten up and hogtied a guard and wearing the man's clothes, walks off the roof and down into the street, cool as a cucumber, where Foggy and Karen have just met up and are standing watching the action unfold. Foggy is still lying about being Daredevil and the Masked Marauder overhears him, now he thinks Foggy Nelson is Daredevil. Meanwhile, unable to find a mass marauder, we find Matt instead, staring out of the window of Nelson and Murdoch, wondering what comes next for him with the mass marauder loose, Foggy lying, and Spidey capable of knocking his block off whenever he gets the chance. Awesome story, but as always, there's no rest for the weary, and Spidey's got his own problems over in his own title, so in the words of, well, Pete's friend me, let's swing! The credits. This issue was edited and written by Smiling Stan Lee, plotted and drawn by Swinging Steve Ditko, and lettered and cherished by Artie It's In The Name, Simek. The cover. The cover of this issue is set in a black negative space with the amazing Spider-Man in goldenrod yellow and red in those classic 90s Spidey cartoon colors. Beneath this, at the center of the page, we've got the head of a bald man in his early 50s by the looks of him with sallow skin, a large left ear, an arch bushy left eyebrow, an emerald green eye with bags beneath it, high thin cheekbones, and a cleft chin. His right eye and ear? We have no idea what they look like because he's wearing a large gray futuristic monocle with a solid black lens that covers the eye and ear. There's a metallic strap running from the device down the front of his forehead where what I assume is a transmitter juts out above his left eyebrow. He's looking directly at us with a sinister pearly white grin that stretches the lines around his mouth to their limits. To the left and right of him, in a purple banner with white font, we get the title of this Silver Age tale. Once upon a time, there was a robot. And beneath it, in two separate panels, we got action. In the vertical rectangle on the left, we see Spidey, suited and booted in his classic red and blue garb, surrounded by a torrent of fire. If you're wondering why our hero doesn't just leap out of this blaze, well, both of his arms have been tugged behind his back by a pine needle green amoeba-like blob with lime green spots. If you've ever seen the movie Flubber, starring the legend Robin Williams, the blue goop given life, the Flubber, this kind of resembles that. Evil Flubber is the size of our hero's torso and has tentacles coming out of its body at all different angles, with three tentacles wrapping each of Spidey's arms and wrenching them behind the webhead's back. Spidey's trying to race forward, but his legs are both bound by a different, large, green tentacle. But Spidey gives as good as he gets, because in the right panel, the action line coming from stage right says Spidey's just bounded onto the scene on a handstand, agility on, best ever, as is his forte. His right fingertips pressed against the floor, his left fist clenched, he's barely dodged the yellow eye beam that hits the floor just behind his shoulder, shot from a gunmetal gray, one-eyed automaton. This thing's got feet like a medieval knight's armored boots, rounded kneecap, shoulder, elbow, and wrist joints, and three pronged fingers on both hands with a rod for a waist, a green Power Ranger shield-shaped upper torso, and a dome-shaped head. If that ain't enough, this thing is seven feet tall, and And you can't can't teach that. that. This is, in my opinion, of course the very first model from the Terminator series. My people, we've got Evil Flubber and the T1. But Spidey's fearless. As he braces against the floor, dodging the laser beam, he's connected with the right side of the T1's chest with his left foot. Not that this has stopped the robot, it's still coming forward. But I mean, that's an A for effort. I wanna see what happens next. Let's get into it. Page one opens to The Amazing Spider-Man in a goldenrod caption box. Beneath this, in a purple screen caption box. Once upon a time, there was a robot. And beneath this and two more goldenrod caption boxes. We hate to brag, but this one's a doozy. Beside the second caption box stage left is a small spider descending from its web. And in the center of the page, massive and beautifully drawn, we've got Spider Pete, suited and booted, his mask hanging from an unseen hook, stage right. His brown hair is a bit shaggy, so a little mask hair working, and he's got his signature double bangs coming down the center of his head. He's got his right hand pressed against the right side of his face, wearing an expression like, HERE WE GO AGAIN! I know I've said it before, but I really do think Tom Holland's Spidey most resembles the comic hero in his youth, because neither of them have a top lip, no shade. Spidey's staring down towards stage left, and with his left hand, he's drumming a large spider's web that's dominating the lower half of the page. And on this spider web, we've got miniaturized versions of a bunch of Spidey's who's who and a few we don't know. We've got the evil Flubber stalking towards our hero, just right of center in the background. We've got Flash, King of Foolsville Thompson in a green blazer, white turtleneck, gray slacks and brown loafers. We've got a gray-haired man in a black shirt and maroon pants standing behind the bald man from the cover who's wearing a button-up shirt and olive pants. Off towards the border in the same space, we've got Frederick Foswell and his underworld identity he uses to get information from the streets, Patch. Wearing his signature pork pie hat and eye patch, a green blazer, an orange sweater and dark brown pants with brown loafers. He's leaning against the border and styling on us. Go ahead, Patch. I see you. Finally, in the foreground, we see the blonde bombshell, Gwen Stacy, in a red blouse and matching skirt with brown loafers. She's carrying two purple books in her hands. Next, we see the T1 lumbering towards the bald scientist with both arms wide. Next to the miserable magnate himself, J. Jonah Jameson, in an SJB suit and orange tie. He's got a cigar clenched in his right fist and is smiling, staring up towards Pete. Next to him, we've got a brand new character whose name we'll know in a bit. He's got red wavy hair, a green suit, a white shirt, and red tie. And finally, another unknown man in a maroon fedora, his back to us, in a tan suit. With all these players, you know we gotta see this play. We turn the page. Page two opens, as it often does, with a caption box. Behind the cold, clammy, confining walls of state prison, a voice utters six welcome words. And we're outside of the same high gray brick walled penitentiary that housed the golden god, Molten Man. It's sitting slightly off center and dominating stage left as we look on through tree branches and leaves. Someone inside shouts to a man named Professor Strom that his sentence is over. The man called Strom thinks, At last, I'm free! free. We zoom inside where a prison guard in an SJB guard outfit complete with cap is standing just outside of a prison cell stage right, watching the bald man from the cover, minus his menacing monocle. He slides an olive green jacket onto his crisp white dress shirt and black tie. We find out from the guard that Strom has been locked up for 10 years and is finally free. The guard wishes him luck. Strom says thanks, but he thinks, Sure, I've been a model prisoner. I've done nothing but plan my revenge all that time. Time. This man has had 10 years to plot out his revenge. Somebody is in for some chop. Then, no sooner does Professor Strom put the iron gates behind him when Strom is strolling out of the prison next, and I love the way Ditko's drawing the man's stride. He's walking with his back straight and fist clenched. This is a man with purpose. Towards what looks like a grey Buick station wagon, where a man in a maroon suit, black shirt and SJB tie with matching blue fedora is waiting for him. The man, a cigarette dangling from his lips, his right hand gripping a wood grain steering wheel, tells Strom it's good to see him and that everything is set the way he wants it. Strom, calling the man Max, tells the driver not to forget himself, that Max will always address him as professor. So. No ego at all, obviously. But, other eyes observe the fateful meeting. The eyes of an ex-con turned reporter named Foswell. Jameson's demon reporter is lurking in the bushes outside of the pen. In his tan, suit and maroon fedora, Foswell is watching Strom climb into the station wagon and thinking to himself that he knew Strom, his former cellmate, was getting out today and recognizes the driver as another ex-inmate named Max Young. That Strom and Young must have made plans while they were locked up together. He races from behind the bushes and into the next panel towards his tan Oldsmobile, thinking that the two are heading for town so he's going to follow them. Because great reporter that he is, his instincts are telling him there's a story there. But he doesn't notice the hand of an unseen man gripping a pistol in the bushes behind him. That guy watching yeah, watch the professor must, must be, a be a stoolie. The prophet would be, be real grateful to me for if I wing him. Wing He's gonna put two in the boy, but no! With a, whoa there, sunny boy. The King of Thwip, who always comes with quips, left arm shoots out from the leaves overhead and socks the guy trying to end Foswell's life right in the chin, sending the man's jaw north. The last position you wanna be in when plotting an assassination. The guy's got auburn hair, a purple blazer, a yellow turtleneck, and lavender pants. It sounds like it works, but the colors are clashing horribly. Either way, as the man's matching lavender fedora flies from his head, Spidey continues. In case you don't know it, this is a no noise zone. Braced up against the tree in the final panel, the man shouts Spider-Man. As the guy who holds the clinging crown stands upside down, suited and booted in his classic red and blue, both fists clenched from a tree branch, he wants answers. Okay, talk. Why'd you trying to ventilate Foswell? I said talk! The guy, shielding his face to open page three, says he means no harm and was just trying to come up in the world with the professor by proving himself useful to the man. Spidey says the man's going to be useful, all right, and orders the goon to follow him. And we've got Grand Theft Auto, Goldenrod City, as Spidey puts the man's fedora onto his own head and forces the man into the driver's seat of his vehicle, telling him that they're going to use the man's car to tail Professor Strong. Using Webbing to stick the man to his driver's seat, he orders him to get going. And they do! Down the road in pursuit of Foswell's car. A tale of a tale of a tale. Oh, what a tale. But exactly 30 seconds later, glancing over his shoulder, Spidey spots a tale of his own, a squad car following them. He says they weren't even speeding and wonders why the car is being followed. And the driver starts sweating, flop sweating, and shouts for Spidey to help him. Use your spider power, get rid of him, you gotta. As the two cars speed towards town, the driver shouts to his partner, Bill. So this is for sure Joe and Bill Tomas probably demoted after their shootout on Fordham Road. What are you talking about? Shut it, you! Joe shouts that the license plate checks out. The car in front of him, the one with Spidey in the back seat, is stolen. That explains the driver's flop sweat. Tomas shouts for Joe to move before the car loses them downtown, while Spidey, still in the back of the car, decides he's reached the end of this road. Well, Buttercup, I've got a hunch it's you thereafter, not me. He opens the door of the speeding car and sprays a web line toward the nearby building. The driver, realizing he's about to get hit with Grand Theft Auto, asks Spidey what he should do when the cops catch him. Spidey, leaping from the car, replies, Try singing a little song. I'm thinking it's going to November. Shout out to Wyclef Jean. Spidey, swinging high above the city now, thinks it's too bad he lost Foswell in the chase because he's sure troubles just around the corner. Thinking he'd better make his way to the bugle for clues, he web swings in that direction. Whee! This sure beats waiting for a bus! In moments like these, I just imagine the exhilaration this teenager's gotta feel at speeding high above it all. A giant spider in a giant city has gotta be a rush. And at the bustling offices of the Daily Bugle, that publishing paragon, J. Jonah Jameson, also wonders about Foswell's whereabouts. We're at 39th Street, 2nd Avenue, Midtown. Limestone building, you can't miss it. With a miserable magnate in a white-collared shirt, orange tie, SJB slacks and brown loafers is standing with his hand on his hip, slightly off-center towards stage left, gripping copy in his opposite hand with a cigar glance in his teeth, as usual. He asks if anyone's seen Foswell and the bustling newsroom around him, all reply they haven't. Everybody's working, so you know JJ is wondering why his ace reporter is nowhere to be found. Oblivious to the fact that Foswell, oblivious himself to almost losing his life, is chasing a brand new scoop. On four, JJ turns to his new secretary, a blonde woman with a curly bob haircut who's filing papers away in a cabinet. She's wearing a green blouse matching green-striped skirt, pearls, and silver wing-shaped glasses. <laughs> Go ahead, blondie. You know we respect fashion hero me and my friend Pete. <laughs> JJ, not one to even pretend to care about the nicety, says. Miss, uh, whatever your name is, are you sure Foswell hasn't called in? Whatever your name is, he said. She replies that she's positive and JJ snaps. Then get back to work. What do you think I'm paying you for? You're literally paying her for what she's doing right now. Filing papers. Half of JJ's face large and stage right of the next panel. The woman thinks JJ's a hatchet face and that smiling would cause the man's frozen features to crack in too. A moment before our friend Pete walks up, sporting a goldenrod vest over a white collar shirt and his classic Steve Jobs blues. Pete thinks every time he comes into JJ's office, there's a new secretary to meet. Guessing Betty really is gone for good. JJ, busy man that he is, already turns to head back to his office. Spots Pete over his shoulder and again, ignoring the niceties, shouts, "What do you want, Parker? If you're having any photos for me, I'm busy. Wait, past busy enough." Pete Scowling replies, speaking of photos, you never paid me for that last cent I sold you. The miserable magnate owes him money. And I just want to point out that from this camera angle, we see JJ is smoking a cigar with a filter tip. That's how I know he's stressed. Standing here smoking a black and mouth like a South Bronx old head. And he, of course, won't blame himself for not paying. He says that ever since Betty Brandt left, his records have been all screwed up and says it's pete's fault he hasn't been paid because the Golden Rock kid is the reason she skipped town heartbreaker thy name be parker i'm sure pete has something he'd like to say about this but he can't get a word in edgewise before foswell enters the bullpen in maroon fedora and matching bow tie tan suit and he's shouting that he's got news for jameson jameson says the man better have because he's been looking for foswell all day and foswell doesn't disappoint He asked J.J. if he's ever heard of Professor Strom, an excel made a mechanical genius. And I really like how Foswell never calls Strom an ex-con. I had a professor in college, Ph.D., who was formerly incarcerated, and he despised the term ex-con because of the connotation it carried. I took a B-plus on an A-plus final paper because of my liberal use of the term. What are you going to do? Respect that people are more than a label. Well, yeah, you're right. Okay, back to. Foswell's mentioned Strom twice so far in this story, and neither time has he referred to Strom as an ex-con. I'd like to think that as a formerly incarcerated person himself from his time as the big man, he probably doesn't like the term either. Either way, Foswell goes on to tell Jameson that Strom is recently released and spent all his time in prison swearing revenge on the guy who sent him up north. As Pete Ear hustles, that's eavesdropping to be sure, Foswell continues, saying he tried to follow Strom, but the man got away. But Foswell's convinced, I'm convinced, that there's a big story here. J.J. invites the man into his office to talk privately. Foswell, removing his hat and leaving it on a filing cabinet, follows the miserable magnate into the office. And barely a split second later, Pete's at the hat, Spidey tracer in hand, thinking, "Think run. This will give me a chance to put my trucky little spider tracer in Foswell's hat band. Good. Nobody saw me." His tracer set, he heads towards the door of the office. Now I can cut out too. But sooner or later, Later. Later. that little have will lead Spider-Man into some new action. The kid loves the action. Now, let's switch our scene to the man in whom everyone seems so interested as we visit the well-equipped hideout of Professor Strom. And we're inside the lab of Professor Strom to open page five. As he slides off his jacket, his henchman Max tells him that using the money Strom had stashed, he bought all the gadgets the mechanical genius told him to get. So we already know Strom is not your run-of-the-mill villain in the 616 universe. These other guys come out. Vulture, Molten Man, The Sandman, and immediately get right to robbing banks because they're strapped for cash. Not Strom. He had a little nest egg stash for his revenge, and he's ready for business. He tells Max he did a good job and sends the man home, telling him to wait for his call. And Strom gets busy. He rolls up his sleeves, walks over to his workbench, the top of it just filled with doodads and doohickeys, and starts building. For 10 years I dreamed of this moment. I dreamed of getting my revenge on the men who cheated me out of my inventions. As he has ruined my life, so shall I ruin him. And while the professor plots, Peter Parker heads for school as usual. We're outside of Empire State University next. We find the goldenrod kid styling in a black turtleneck, goldenrod vest, SJBs, and brown loafers. He's carrying a book and walking a few feet behind the blonde bombshell Gwen Stacy. She's got two golden clips in her platinum blonde hair. She's wearing a red blouse and matching skirt. She's carrying a couple of tech books and waving to someone off panel. Of course Pete's thinking, I wonder, wonder if Gwen is still mad at him. Well, there's only one way, way to find, way to find out. out. He approaches her in the next panel and with his best winning smile says they're walking in the same direction. Would she mind if he joined her? Gwen's not having it. She replies, What are you doing Mr. Parker? Slumming. Usually you're too stuck up to say hello to anyone. And Pete gets 60 sexist in seconds. Well, at least I'm not a temperamental female who droons over a fella one day and then acts like an icicle to him the next. As Gwen stares at him shocked, he thinks his temper has gotten the better of him once again. And he's right. Gwen spins towards him screaming that nobody talks to her that way. Even the new science whiz kid. Pete's like, nah, chill. I was just playing. Let's start over. But Gwen's not having it. She raises her hand and tries to give Pete five across the left side of his face. But you know the kid's reflexes are just like his agility. He raises his left hand, blocking her slap easily, and gets smooth with it. Anyone ever tell you you're gorgeous when you're angry? Flash, king of the Foolsville faithful Thompson, walking past in a tweed green blazer, spots the moment and comes charging towards Pete, screaming that he saw what just happened. Pete tells him he has beady little pig eyes that never miss a trick, and Flash snaps. You eat those words, you puny punk! He shouts for Pete to put up his hands to open page six, but Pete, knowing the rule about great power, thinks he could never fight Flash because he'd hurt the kid badly. And being the bigger man, tells Flash he's sorry, he can't do it. That if Flash damaged Pete's handsome face, half the girls in the school would be heartbroken. The Goldenrod Kid, ESU's newest pretty boy! Flash, shaking a fist at Pete, calls him a yellow fink and a chicken! Gwen, over all the bravado tells Flash to let Pete go. Flash replies, OK, doll, but if he bothers you again, just let me know. Quinn's not buying it, though. She bet her last buck that Pete wasn't afraid of Flash at all. She heads to science class where Pete's already got his golden rod vest off, getting sciency. In the background, as he talks to the wavy, red-haired Harry Osborne in the foreground, who's working himself, wearing latex gloves and his signature bow tie. Harry, king of Salt Lake City, tells her he saw what happened, and Parker annoys him too. There is no love lost for Pete Parker in this school. But Gwen's used to people throwing shade, telling Harry that the guy doesn't have any use for anyone smarter than him, and points out Pete's never bothered him. So for all her beef with Pete, Gwen's still not going to throw stones at him that he doesn't deserve. But she doesn't like it. She wonders what's wrong with her. Like, why am I defending this jerk? As Pete, catching snatches of the conversation, thinks, boy If unpopularity ever became popular, I'd be top man around here. Then, as the class ends, we're back outside, Pete in the foreground, his vest draped over his shoulder, Flash in the background with a hand on his hip, shouting at Pete to stay out of his way from now on. Pete says gladly that Flash's stupidity might be contagious. But while Peter revels in his merry campus social life, we rejoin Professor Strom once more, just as Max returns. We're back in Strom's lab where he's brought his green flubber monster to life. As his tentacles wave back and forth, one of them wrapping over the bicep of Max, Strom asks his second what the man thinks of his, quote, little beauty. Max is thunderstruck and can only point out the obvious. It it moves by itself. It grabbed me. In the final panel, we get a great shot of Strom in his silver monocle headgear, his right hand pointing towards the ceiling as he tells Max not to worry, that he controls the flubber with his headgear. He says the flubber passed every test, and the best part about the creation is he can follow its every move and tells Max, to watch. And on 7, we watch the Flubber go to work. As Strom says he's dispatching it towards his victim in the first step of his magnificent master plan of total revenge, we watch the Flubber stroll along the floor of the lab, up a set of stone steps, and through a door. The tips of its tentacles become suction cups, and it begins scaling a sheer lavender wall and an alley. It races along the rooftops and the gutter between panels, and descends down the gray sheer wall of an electronics shop, but there's a small hiccup. An auburn-haired armored guard spots the Flubber and wonders aloud, as most of us would, what he's looking at. He doesn't tell the Flubber to halt. He doesn't try to reason with it. No. He pulls his revolver from its holster and begins blasting. But as the bullets ricochet off the blob, the guard realizes he's got to make tracks. As he bolts away, he shouts, How do I know I'm not seeing things? Good question, to be sure. We get a close-up of Strom next, bathed in a golden light with a smile on his face, and he is... Delighted. The guard is gone. The place is now deserted. Except for my robot. Everything is perfect. The camera shows back to Flubber as Strom continues his monologue off panel. I want my revenge to last. The longer it takes, the more I'll enjoy it. Hence, we will merely wreck part of his laboratory now. To begin with, I'll hit him where it hurts the most, his wallet. And we watch the green blob smash through the wall of said laboratory with two hammer-like tentacles before climbing inside and destroying everything in its sight. In the final panel, we watch it lift a destroy control panel above its, well, above its body, it doesn't have a head, as fires rage around it. This thing is working. We turn the page and we're on the infinity, infinity page. Page Page eight. Just in time to witness a crowd reaction shot outside of the electronics plant where we've got a guy in an olive fedora with horn-rimmed glasses, a guy in a denim jacket staring over his shoulder stage left looking towards the sky. A guy in a green fedora, a woman in a lavender French cap, and a blonde woman, all standing in front of Joe the police officer, who's blocking off the smoking building and telling the crowd to part and stay back so fire trucks can get through. The black guy in a blue denim looking over his shoulder shouts, I could have sworn I saw someone in the air above me. But with all this smoke, I must have imagined it. This guy spotted none other than the golden liability, who, web swinging above the area on patrol, smelled the smoke from around the corner and came to help, wondering if anyone's trapped inside of the burning building. He web through an open window into the next panel, thinking, If anyone's I trapped inside, inside I may be able, be able to help. help. No, no, the place seems empty enough, except for... only Hannah, Hannah! There's something crawling along the floor, coming towards really? me! As the flubber moves in his direction. And we've got action! The flubber sends a tentacle racing towards Spidey, wrapping our hero's left wrist on impact as Spidey thinks, It's got tentacles! tentacles. It grabbed me! Mm-hmm. Jesus, What if I run into? Shout out to the one-man hand team! The blob lifts Spidey off his feet easily and swings our hero towards the destroyed control panel, hoping to smash Spidey against it. But Spidey, using his strength, braces against the panel with his free hand and kicks both feet out, bouncing off the panel, agility on, best ever. His feet back on the ground in the final panel, smoke beginning to fill the room behind the blob. Spidey grabs a tentacle, wrapping his arm, and pulls. To no avail in fact it's stronger than i thought i can't push it or pull it or make it punch on nine the blob using the tension from his tentacle much like a stretch rubber band shoots <coughs> across the room and slams into spidey's gut knocking the wind from our hero's lungs and taking his feet from under him this blob is working but it's just getting started spidey now on all fours is mounted by the blob in the next panel and put into a full nelson spidey struggles up to his knees trying to break the hold but can't. It's is too evenly distributed. Ugh. I, I can't, can't get it off. off. As the blob forces him back towards the floor, wrapping tentacles around each arm and leg. Our hero's head bowed, his arms arched awkwardly behind his back. Spidey's in a bad way. It's so, so skillfully, skillfully made, made, made that it hasn't any weak, weak points, voice. which is more no, than I'm I can, can say, say about myself. myself. I'm actually, I'm actually helpless. helpless. His face pressed against the floor in the next panel. Spidey gets desperate. Wait, Wait there's, there's, there's one thing that might help. help. And summoning his strength, leaps towards the fire that spread a few feet in front of him, getting sciency. The fire, Fire. it's my only chance. Chance. Any mechanism as delicately constructed as this robot robot might go all to pieces pieces in the midst of hungry flames. flames. The two tumble into the fire together in the final panel, Spidey hoping his plan works fast before he's burned alive himself. Man is quite literally playing with fire, and it works. Tin opens to the blob, releasing the King of Swing in the midst of the fire and making tracks. Fighting, bounding from the flames in the next panel towards a sheer wall, thinks he'd better get out of the building fast before it collapses, but wishes he could have learned more about the robot. He leaps back oh. through the open window, thinking he'll probably see the blob again, and gets out of there as people on the street below look up, shouting. Look, it's Spider-Man! Say, maybe he started the fire. Could be! If there's smoke in the air, then that means that will Park Parker's in there! Shout out to Mel Cipher! Later, back at the sinister sanctum of Professor Strum. Strom is pushing forward with his plans as we see he and Max back in the lab, staring at Strom's latest creation, the head of his T1 Cyclops sitting on a counter. Strom, adjusting his massive monocle with his right hand, gripping a square remote attached to a large blue control panel is, as villains do in the Silver Age, shouting to Max, who's literally standing right next to him. My first robot has served its purpose admirably, but it is now... Useless. He flips a switch on his remote and the eye opens up, firing a red hot laser beam across the room towards a metal target set up there. Strom takes the monocle headgear from his head in the space between panels and has walked over to the standing legs of the T1. Lifting what looks like the arm of the T1, he tells Max that the two of them should be able to put the robot together within the hour. And Max says what I'm thinking. You sure weren't kidding about that revenge kick of yours, huh, Professor? Strom, in full on villain mode now, replies. Professor Strom never kids. When they're third person, you know we lost them. And now, we've got a small-scale surprise for you. Remember Harry Osborne, one of Peter Parker's nastier schoolmates? We remember. We're inside of the now-fire-extinguished electronics plant, a firefighter in the back spraying the last bit of embers, Officer Blackman in the foreground keeping the public out, and Harry Osborne is standing in the center of the page wearing a tan suit and olive bow tie with a red-haired man who looks a lot like Harry, minus the pig nose. This man's got red wavy hair, the same widow's peak, and the same large ears, but where Harry has a very weak-looking jawline, this man has a solidly square jaw and high cheekbones. He's in a green suit, white button-up, and red pinstripe tie. This guy actually made his first appearance back in Amazing Spider-Man number 23 in J.J.'s Gentlemen's Club. He didn't speak in that issue, but can be clearly seen in panel beside J.J. as the miserable magnate gloats about how great he is at running his newspaper. That was the season one episode, pressed on all sides. Here are me and my friend Pete, back to Harry, a fist clenched, is pissed. I don't get it, Dad. Why would Spider-Man try to burn down your plant? So we know now this is Harry's father, and he replies, hands in pockets, that Spider-Man didn't do this, and Harry shouldn't believe everything he hears. When Harry asks who did, we get a glimpse into the father and son dynamic here, as his father replies, none of your blasted business. In the final panel, his dad looks away from Harry and starts sweating, flop sweating, thinking, I can't tell the kid how I cheated cheated Professor Strom out of his inventions. And then, and then railroaded him into, into jail, jail when, when he began he to threaten me. me. It, has it has to be strong, strong. who's after, after me? me. Harry, still refusing to let Spidey off his pig nose hook, ass wouldn't it be something if Spider-Man is trying to work a protection rocket? To which his father replies, Harry, don't you ever shut up. This guy does not want to hear his kids speak at all. I'm inclined to agree based off of Harry's saltiness towards Pete, but people, listen to your children. You never know what they're trying to do, and this reads to me like Harry's trying to brainstorm to impress his father with his insight. Nothing to be snidely chided for. At that moment, his nose for news twitching up a storm. Jolly Jonah Jameson enters our scene. JJ walks right past Officer Blackman to open page 11 and gets right into conversation, wasting no time. I was at our club when I heard the news. Don't worry, Norman. Spider-Man won't get away with this. So now we know this man is Norman Osborn. A name that if you stay here listening, you'll come to know well. And Norman tells Jonah they're not sure Spidey's involved. But J.J.'s sure. And lighting a cigar in the next panel says so because he's never wrong about these things. He asks if Osborne's insurance will handle the damages, and Norman says yes. But if this wasn't a one-off attack, if things like this continue, his insurance company won't renew his contract. Harry folds his arms and shouts that they've got to do something. J.J. replies, That's a smart boy you got, Norman. I like the way he sums up a situation. He'll go far. Norman says he should. J.J., busy man that he is, way past busy enough, tells Norman that if there's anything he can do for a fellow club member, Norman just has to let him know. I'm sure that doesn't extend to lending any money, though, and I think Norman is, too. Tell J.J. that he'll call the man if he needs the man. Meanwhile, blithely swinging over the some-ambulance city we find. Hold on, did they say some-ambulance? Translation? Resembling or characteristic of a sleepwalker. Sluggish. That's a $20 word, Big Stan, but I don't hate it. Back to, Spidey's web swinging above the city we know and love, giving the game away as usual. The character Foswell referred to might be responsible for that naughty That's robot. I better keep tabs on old Fozzie. And, speaking of the elusive Mr. Foswell. The story shifts to the inside of Foswell's apartment where Jameson's ace reporter has thrown on his underworld outfit in the form of Patch the Stoolie. He's got his pork pie hat on, he's got on his green blazer, his tan slacks, his orange turtleneck, his signature black eye patch his chameleon mask that he's paid an arm in a leg for and he's heading out the door hoping to gain more information about where professor strom is hiding out using his underworld connections as patch then no sooner has patch departed when an uninvited caller arrives spidey no respect for foswell's privacy b the reporter's home and gripping the man's brown fedora as he stands in the living room shouts just my luck he changed clothes i wonder if he knew i had my spider tracer hidden on his hat Well maybe I can still spot him somehow. And I gotta say, for all intents and purposes, Foswell so far has shown no signs of returning to a life of crime. But Spidey uses the man's past as an excuse to constantly violate his privacy. I love you Spidey, but you gotta stop breaking into this man's home. A short time later, in one of the seedier sections of town. Patch has got his ear to the street and is wasting no time. He goes to the seedy bar on the Lower East Side to see a man named Charlie and a blue baseball cap. He asks the man if he's heard anything. But Charlie is as New York as it gets. No, and even if I did, I wouldn't spill it to a punk like you. Charlie's heard about Patch working with the police. He's giving the man nothing, making me think... I can't sneak. Shout out to Riley. But Patch isn't deterred, thinking that someone will tell him what he wants to know for a price. He's gonna grease a few palms and get the info he needs. Wild just outside the Smoky Saloon. Spidey's clinging to a sheer wall, poking his head around the corner, scoping out the scene as he's wont to do, thinking he's getting nothing but heartburn from hanging upside down. His patience is rewarded in the final panel, however, when Patch exits the bar, puffing a cigarette with his eyes closed. Spidey spots him, thinking, It's that that stool! stool. Patch! Patch. Might as well tail after him till I can get a lead on Osmo. And Patch, the best there is at what he does, is monologuing something fierce. I knew I'd learned something, but first, I'll check it out before I call the cops. Mance is going to get the scoop and go to the cops. Charlie knows what this man's about. This is becoming a snitchathon. And as Patch thoughtfully walks in the direction of Professor Strom's laboratory, we prove our cleverness by beating him to it. Twelve opens to us viewing Professor Strom from behind as he puts his robot-controlling headgear onto his baldy, shouting across the room to Max, who's standing next to the fully constructed T1. Everything is ready, Max. Release the robot and stand aside. I've got to test it. Max, realizing they've just created a full-blown death machine, tells Strom that this thing is going to be more dangerous than the Flubber robot. Strom, not a humble bone in his body, says of course it will and orders Max to start it up. As soon as Max turns the machine on, it lumbers forward and fires a laser beam from its cyclops head. (laughs) We better get that clapperboard ready while outside the lab. Spidey is perched on the ledge above the head of Patch, the stoolie thinking, One thing's for sure, Patch isn't merely sightseeing, he's after something here. But what? While Patch, creeping towards a back entrance, thinks he spent a lot of his cash to find this place, but he knows Strom is in the area. Before he reaches the back door, however, Max pushes a secret exit door open with a pistol in his right hand, coming up behind Patch and shouting for the stoolie to stay where he is and that he better not move. Spidey doesn't make a move at first, he's getting Surveillance thinking this whole situation is very interesting. This is like watching a Man From U.N.C.L.E. on a Life Science TV screen. The Man From U.N.C.L.E. was an NBC television series that ran from September 22, 1964 to January 15, 1968. Created by Sam Rolfe and Norman Felton, the series followed hotshot spies Napoleon Solo of the United States, played by Robert Vaughn, and Ilya Kuryakin from Russia, played by David McCallum. Two secret agents for the United Network Command for Law Enforcement, or U.N.C.L.E., Each episode focused around an innocent person being aided by the Uncle team using their cunning style and panache to get the job done in aiding said innocent. You know you can't say spy without gadgets, and Uncle had a couple major ones. This show introduced handheld satellite communicators, we call those cell phones today, and a gun known as the Uncle Special, a modified Mauser Model 1934 pocket pistol originally before being replaced by a Walther P-38. The weapon had the distinction of having an extended magazine that became so popular, gun manufacturers began creating extendo clips for pistols in real life. Life imitating art. The series was wildly popular, running for 105 episodes, spawning numerous copycat shows, and despite being complete fiction, had many of the show's props donated to the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library and Museum, the Central Intelligence Agency's museum, and several other intelligence agencies' museums. The show won eight Emmys from 1965 to 1967, four Golden Globes from 1965 to 1967, a Logie Award in 1966, essentially an Australian Emmy for Best Overseas Show, and spawned eight theatrical releases. These spies were working. There was a 2015 movie, multiple comic book series, and more merchandise than you can stash in the trunk of the uncle car. Thanks, Wikipedia! So Spidey isn't only an action-packed adventurer, and his downtime. He loves the Spy Guys. Back to Max lists a communicator to his face and lets the professor know that they've got a snoop at gunpoint. Strom says to bring the man in. A moment before the T1 stomps out of the secret entrance to parts unknown. Spidey, running his hand over his mask, is upset thinking he's got to mix it up with another robot. He's tired of all the machine mambos. Max, down below, orders Patch into the lab. Now, Spidey's got a choice to make. I'm going to follow that lacking stone pipe and see what it's up to. But I can't cut out on Patch when it looks as if he's going to need some help. But fast! There's only one thing I can do! Great power! You already know the choice is no choice at all. On 13, Spidey pulls a spider tracer from his belt thinking he'll toss one at the robot before going to help patch. Does Spidey get the hit? Of course he gets the hit! Thinking, Boy, am I glad I drained these little gadgets, up, they're worth their weight of influence! Have a nice trip, skinny, and be careful not to shake your little passenger He hurls the spider tracer towards the T1 where it connects and sticks to the robot's metal rear. Spidey, wasting no time, leaps from his perch and pokes his head into the lab upside down where Max is leading Patch deeper into the facility. As Spidey crawls along the ceiling following the two men, Max tries to pump Patch for information. Don't turn around, mister. Just talk. What were you snooping around here for? I said talk. I'm not holding this gun just to keep my fingers company. But Patch ain't new to being in a tough spot. He says he wasn't looking for trouble, that he only came to get a job from the professor. Max, probably feeling his position threatened, replies, So you know about the professor, huh? That's too bad, mister. Too bad for you. And cocks the hammer back. He's about to collect from Patch the debt that all men pay. But no! Spidey, still clinging to the ceiling, shouts, Don't bet on it, Big Mouth. It might be too bad for Strom. Max screams, Spider-Man! Of course, prompting Spidey to ask how the guy recognized him. Max, not a fighter at all, breaks stage left into the final panel and through a doorway as Pat shouts that the man's getting away and sealing off the exits. Spidey, shouting that he noticed, shoots a web line towards the doorway trying to pursue Max, but a concrete door slams shut before he web swing through it. On 14, Pat beats futilely against the sealed door with both hands. I was a fool to let him trap me this way. We'll never break out. But Spidey's not stressing it. He bounds off the wall onto the floor and up towards an air shaft saying of course they will because they're the good guys. He rips the cover from the air shaft in the gutter between panels and tells Patch in the next that the man will be safe where he is. When Patch asks what Spidey's gonna do, Spidey tells Patch to grab Max's gun and that he's going to catch a robot. Climbing up the air shaft in the next panel, Spidey's monologuing something fierce. I'm gonna latch onto that walking pile of nuts and bolts before it does any damage. And with my little Spidey Tracer zeroing me in. It can't take more than a few minutes. While, on the other side of the thick cement wall, Strom, slamming his fist on his workstation as Max looks on, shouts at the man to forget about their two prisoners. My moment of revenge is again at hand. I must concentrate on keeping my robot under perfect control. So it's scene switching time again. And the scene switches just as the T-1 smashes through the office door of a one Norman Osborne with a deafening crash. <laughs> Strom screams through the robot's communicator. I have re- and Osborne, surely you remember my threat? Osborne, rising from his desk starts copping a plea immediately, screaming that the two need to talk it over. As Osborne cowers in the final panel, Strom lets the man know that he ain't come here to talk. It's too late for talk, my scheming ex-partner. I've waited too long for this treasured moment. He and Osborne used to work together. Osborne, talking sense, tells the man that he can't do this, that if he does, they're going to take Strom back to prison. And Strom, knowing he's got the perfect alibi, replies, to a robot. On 15, the robot fires a laser beam, destroying Osborne's desk as Strom shouts that first he's going to ruin Osborne financially, then destroy all the things the man holds dear. Osborne, displaying quick reflexes for a simple businessman, dodges the blast, thinking he outsmarted the man once and he can do it again. But I don't think he's really thinking straight. There ain't no time to think. The robot fires another jet of laser, obliterating the wall behind Osborne, who, covering his face with his left hand, barely gets out of the way. Strom still screaming. I suggest you move aside, Osborne. I want to save you for the last. You may occupy your time by pleading for mercy, if you like. Osborn, realizing the man doesn't want to kill him yet, also realizes he's safe for the moment. And now he knows what he has to do. These are two great back-to-back panels. The detail in the art is fantastic. Osborn's hair in the first blowing back from the blast, destroying his desk. The spider tracer on the rear of the robot in the second, reminding us that our hero's got a bead on the killing machine. And speaking of our hero... And at that moment, in the best superhero tradition, in comes Spidey. And no lies spoken. Spidey comes diving headfirst, both arms in front of him, through an open window as the robot continues blasting the wall near Osborn. And we got action. Again! Of course Strom shouts Spider-Man. Spidey shouting he's arrived just in time, as heroes do. He's impressed, screaming that this robot can talk. He hits the floor on a handstand in the gutter between panels and we oh. get the cover in panel here as our hero pushes from the floor on his right hand, agility on, best ever, and connects with his left foot across the right side of the cyclops face, putting himself between Osborne and the danger. Osborne, for his part, is watching all of this in shock in the foreground and he isn't happy to see the Webhead. He thinks, why, did, why he did he have to butt, butt in that? Now. If he defeats, he defeats the he robot, it could ruin my plan to, be be to be get rid of, of Strom forever. forever. But that's just what Spidey does. He backflips away from the robot, landing a hair length away from the Cyclops laser beam as it burns through the floor to the right of him, thinking. This won't be easy. I couldn't even punch him. And I don't like the looks of that beam shooting 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 out out towards me. me. In the final panel, as Spidey leaps back first through an adjacent doorway, his legs parted, a laser beam blasting through the space between, Osborn gives us a bit more exposition. Spider-Man should have known better better than to butt into something that doesn't concern him. I hope the robot finishes him off. He's becoming too dangerous to my plan. Osborne, his life on the line, and Spidey putting his own neck out there to save him, and quite literally his junk in this moment, is thinking he doesn't need our hero's help. The nerve. Well, you got it, Normie, regardless. On 16, we get a BEA beautiful panel. A Spidey back down a staircase, his left hand gripping the banister, his right spraying a line of webbing at the advancing T1 that's follow him through the door, blocking a blast, from the laser beam. What makes this panel for me is this. As the robot moves forward, we see Spidey's tracer fall from its rear. It's a great little attention to detail. Swinging Steve is working right now. But so is Spidey. Mind and body. He side flips behind a large huh. concrete pillar. Upside down, both arms above his head. Narrowly dodging laser blast stage right. Using the pillar in front of him as a shield against the T1's next blast. The whole time, thinking. Strange that fella didn't seem the least bit grateful to see me come between him and the robot. Well, I'll think about that some other time, t- t- if I live that long. So Spidey, despite fighting for his life, again, still notices the cold reception he's received from a one Norman Osborn. He lands near what looks like a futuristic toaster in the next panel and grabbing it, hurls it towards the robot thinking, if he can make the machine lose his balance and fall, he'll have a chance to tear it apart. But the robot, raising both metal arms, blocks the toaster with both hands easily. It fires another blast towards our hero who leaps above the beam in the next panel still lost in thought. It's moments like this that make me wish someone else had been bitten by that radioactive spider. Sorry Spidey, that won't happen for another 47 years. But as Spidey races past the man he was trying to save, Now's my chance. He was too busy to pay attention to me, and the robot hasn't seen me yet either. Osborn races up behind Spider-Man and decks our hero in the back of the head, sending Spidey's jaw north. Spidey's right arm clutches his chest. His left flies up into the air. Another laser beam barely missing him, blasting through another pillar, almost taking our hero's arm off. And this, the panel of the week. The way the light's hitting Spidey's costume, the grin on Osborne's face, the laser beam damn near taking his arm off, gorgeous panel on an action-packed page. On 17, we see the man called Osborne packs a punch because as he bolts towards the stairs in the background thinking the robot will finish our hero off, Spidey, clutching his head in the foreground, is stretched out on the floor, unconscious. Seconds later... As Spidey lays knocked out in the background, in the foreground, the murder bot clanks towards him, Professor Strom taking another moment to monologue. Some poisonous favor must have gotten him. Half the cons in prison will celebrate when the news gets out. But it looks as though osborne has got away. I'll destroy his plan while he's gone, just as i two planned to. And proceeds to do exactly that in the next panel. Spidey, laying there, sleep, sleep. Norman really, really hands-teamed our hero. Spidey is still laying here, probably dreaming of the last time he was knocked out way back in season one, episode 20. The man with the vicious right hand by Big Mac Gargan, AKA the Scorpion. Later, after the rumbling robot has finally clanked off into the night. Spidey wakes up beneath a smoking pillar, a chunk missing from it because of the T1's rampage and rolling over onto all fours, massages the back of his head where Osborne struck him. Weeew! My aching head! I must have been hit by a king sized piece of flying debris! So Spidey doesn't think he was decked. He thinks a loose brick put him down. Either way, this begs the question of where was the man's Spider-Sense? That thing clocks out at the worst of times. But I guess I'm not being fair. If I were fighting a murder robot and had a Spider-Sense, I'm sure it'd be more focused on the robot shooting friggin' laser beams out of its friggin' head. But Spidey's done sleeping. He hurtles a futuristic-looking piece of machinery from his knees in pursuit of the T1, thinking that the machine didn't finish him off because it thought he was dead. Assuming the murder bot is headed back to the laboratory where Patch is being held, web-swinging the whole time, I'm sure, Spidey races across the city and into the final panel outside of Strom's lab towards a shutting steel door, the murder machine just inside moving deeper into the laboratory. And Spidey starts getting his hits back immediately to open page 18. Still swinging on his web line, barely making it through the slamming door, he rams both feet into the rear end of the T1, sending the machine tumbling down the stairs. Strong, off to the side of the foot of the stairs, shouts, Spider-Man! Again! Spidey replies, You sound that wrong, mister! And spider man still! King of swing, and he's still so proper! And we've got action! Again, again! The robot, agile for a clunker its size, lands in the classic Black Widow Marvel Cinematic Universe pose. Why do I do that thing? Do what the thing you do when you're fighting, and the like the this this thing that you do when you whip your hair when you're fighting with the arm and the hair, and you do like a fighting pose. It's if yeah. It's a fighting pose. You're a total pose. That's one leg bent at the knee, the other straight out to the side, his left knob of a hand pressed against the floor, his right cocked back, and Spidey lands beside the machine and immediately has to go Matrix, throwing his body backwards as the T1 swings its head, laser beam activated, of course, towards our hero's torso. Spidey thinking, it's now or never. Can't wait for that beam to hit me. And grabbing the robot's right forearm with his right hand and the T1's left leg with his left hand, the King of Swing shows off his strength. Shouting, got him! Uh!" He swings the robot above his head in a modified angle slam. Shout out to Kurt Angle. And in his Birkin now, releases the T1's arm in the gutter between panels. Grabbing its left leg with both hands, Spidey's thinking, By using just the right leverage at the right time, I am setting a delicate mechanical circuitry he slams the giant back with force the impact so great the T1 fires one final laser beam destroying its own control panel That does it! He smashes into the power control units! And Spidey, using his left hand tosses the destroyed robot into its own control panel like a softball with no effort at all inches away from Professor Strom who bolts stage right ignoring Spidey's orders to stand still Meanwhile, if you're wondering what happened to Patch the stoolie the concrete doors keeping him in prison have begun to open and Patch, gripping the pistol Max left behind, is thinking the worst. Why in Why blazes did Spider-Man, get back, back here, in here in time. Patch, if you only knew. In the final panel, Max enters the scene, and he is sweating, flop, sweating, looking over his shoulder towards the battle raging behind him, screaming. Strong can't pay me enough to stay and face Spider-Man. I'm cutting out while I can. Oblivious to the fact that Patch is standing in front of him, gripping his pistol. Translation, you ain't going nowhere, fella. That's a double negative. And Bud, back at the ranch. 19 opens to Strom managing to get a hold of the T1 head and blasting a laser beam from it manually at Spidey, screaming, ha, the robot head is still undamaged. I'll get rid of you yet. But our hero, AOBE, does a side flip off huh. his left hand ha. onto a handstand, oh. screaming his reply. Want to know something Strom? Trying to get rid of Spidey seems to be the national underworld pastime, and I'm getting tired of it. Spidey, wanting people to switch back to baseball. He fires a line of wet fluid, snagging the base of the T1 head and landing right side up, yanks it from Strom's hands. The robot's laser beam blasts a hole in the wall above Strom's head, damn near decapitating him in the process and destroying the T1. Spidey shouting, Sorry, that's the ballgame. And this fight is over the drama isn't. In the next panel, we're looking down into the room from a high vantage point where the barrel of a rifle is aimed down on Spidey and Strom. Whoever's holding the rifle thinks that they can't take the chance of Strom spilling the beans on them, that there's too much at stake, too much to lose. Patch leads Max back into the room at gunpoint as Spidey advances towards Strom, who raises both hands in surrender, but the man is still fearless. Even though you caught me, I'll still have my revenge. There's something I must tell you. Something nobody knows about. But whatever he's about to say is cut off by Spidey's sixth sense for danger. He spots the gun in the window and shouts, Look out! Before leaping the short distance between he and Strom, pushing the man out of harm's way. A second later, Spidey's off his feet mid-leap towards the window, thinking he can't let the person holding the gun get away as Strom, down below, clutches his chest. Peering out of the window in the next panel, Spidey's thinking, It doesn't make sense. It only took me two seconds to get up here. How could he have vanished so soon? How indeed, Spidey. Spidey leaps back into the room in the final panel still wondering. And how did, how did he get you up, up there, there in the first place? place? There was no rope, no ladder, no sound of a helicopter. He spots the down body of Professor Strom with Patch standing over it and asking what happens, learns from Patch that the man died from what looks like a heart attack. Knowing we can only help the living, Spidey leaps onto a sheer wall stage right to open page 20, telling Patch that he can handle things from here out and gets... Out of there. Later, at the Osborne residence. Norman, all smiles, is putting a tie around his neck, standing just inside a door as his son Harry shouts that Jameson is in the building with some good news. Norman says he knows. He heard on the radio that Professor Strom was found dead. And in the next panel, Jameson enters in an SJB suit and orange tie, gripping a cigar in his right hand, his lapel in his left. All smiles as he says, I thought it was my duty as a fellow club member to tell you that you're safe now. That crooked ex-partner of yours was to blame for those attacks. But he can't bother you anymore. Norman says he knows. He heard on the radio that Professor Strom was found dead. That means everybody fled the scene. The man was found dead. Max was gone. Patch was gone. Spidey was gone. They left this man's body dead where it lay. That's insane to me. The poor devil. I had forgotten all about him. Ryan. James says, hey, well... He didn't forget that the man must have spent all his time in prison plotting revenge. He goes on to say that some people, like Spider-Man, can never be reformed. Why can't he keep our hero's name out of his mouth? Norman thanks J.J. for coming by. J.J. says he had to. He's all heart and tells Norman that he'll see him around the club and gets gone. But when Norman Osborn is finally alone, he returns to his dark and menacing thoughts. Gripping a rifle, his brow furrowed in anger. Osborn thinks that Spider-Man almost ruined everything. That now that our hero's suspicions are piqued, he's got to be disposed of. Osborn is going to try to kill the Spider-Man. I think he's the guy who shot at Strom. And I just want to say, if he's throwing hooks that can knock our hero out, a hero who's going toe-to-toe with some major league bruisers, he just may be able to do it. And in another section of the city, Pete's back on the scene in his goldenrod vest outfit walking past a group of young adults who ask him if he'd like to go bowling with them. But Pete's too lost in thought to notice. I couldn't have imagined it. There was someone at that window with a gun. And of course, that Parker Luck turns the crowd against him as someone shouts, Boy, how stuck up can you get? And another screams, He's as big a snob as everyone says he is. Pete, his hands covering his mouth, his eyes wide with shock, is thinking, But there could be another answer what if I'm losing my Spider-Sense? In the final panel, as two youngsters continue sucking smack behind him. So he's too good for us, huh? Guys like him don't want to know anybody. They'd rather go around without a care in the world. Pete, his back to them both is thinking, it could mean the, be the beginning of the end for Spider-Man. Man. Uh, I better not, not even, even think about, about it. it. Going around without a care in the world, if they only knew. Beneath this, we get a goldenrod caption box. Next dish. While waiting to see more of the mysterious Mr. Osborne, we'll toss a new villain at you. Nuff said. And we're out! Professor Strom is a bad man, but not too bright despite all his brains. I were him, I'd have Flubber and T1 tag team the webhead and put him on ice. But you know I'm not going against the home team. Strom will be back, and so will the Iron Fister Norman Osborne. and I promise you're gonna love how you hate him. His character development right off the bat is great. His coldness towards Harry in private while praising him in front of JJ. His inner monologue and his sinister nature are all going to raise the stakes dangerously in the lives of both Pete and Spider-Man. If you can, that Daredevil number 17 is a masterpiece of art by future Spidey artist John Romita and a diamond of a glimpse of things to come. Next episode, we went through ASM number 38, Just a Guy named joe and i promise you i've read a lot of spidey comics in my life but this is one of the weirdest i've ever seen i cannot wait to retell this story that's the main episode this week and that's true that's the main episode but there is more me and my friend pete available for your listening pleasure right now if you support this show on patreon.com hspp Patrons have a vault filled with bonus episodes covering comic book stories from all over the multiverse of comic book universes. Next bonus episode, we're adding to the vault with a story from Icon Comics. Superior, number two. Question, what happens when the world's greatest on-screen superhero comes to life through the body of a small, frail boy whose only wish is to be normal? (laughs) Well, we're about to find out. If we've got comics, we've got history, and I'll be your guide through it all. Join us. This podcast is completely listener supported and your support keeps this crazy train on the tracks. I'm truly grateful you keep coming back and more grateful you allow me to be the conductor. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, a special thanks to the home team, Parker's Dirty Dozen. Sign up now, vote on Baldus episodes, make it a Baker's. If you sign up before ASM number 50, you receive a special thank you lapel for being a patron during season two. Let's keep these good times rolling. You won't regret it. You got questions? Send them to me in my friend Pete at gmail.com and I'll go digging for the answers. Follow us on Instagram at MNMFP underscore podcast. The panel of the week can be found at patreon.com slash HSPP. No charge. I didn't draw it. All that said, that's all that said. Please like, please share. share. Please take care and please think of the world and be true to yourself. That Dusty Trails are calling so there's no use stalling, but you know the tagline for the people of great, great power, power, you know you the rest. Best. Make, Make sure, sure you're being responsible. Being responsible. I'm out of here.